Hello, and a warm welcome to episode 5 of Are We There Yet? The Project Edward 2022 podcast, with me, James Luckhurst. We have a fantastic opportunity this week for an in-depth exploration of this year's theme, Changing Minds, Changing Behaviour. And that's thanks to the expertise of one transport psychologist who shares his thoughts on what does and doesn't work in behaviour change. And we have the chance to consider two examples high on his list. The first is graduated driver licensing. The second is hazard perception tests. Particularly interesting if you caught the interview in episode two with David Crundle and James Evans. So without further ado, let's crack on and welcome this week's guest. My name is Sean Hellman. I I work at the Transport Research Laboratory or or TRL Limited, as we're known as these days. Yeah, and I'm a what's called a transport psychologist. So I, I, I've worked mainly in road safety, but in, in other bits of transport as well for about two decades now. And what I try to do is apply the understanding of psychology and human behaviour to making transport better. Okay, well, before we start talking, and I believe we have the opportunity to consider two particular concepts relating to behaviour change, Let's find out, first of all, what needs to happen? What makes a decent behaviour change intervention? Wow. Okay. That's a really extensive question. In my opinion, it's a really extensive question. So the first first thing to remember about behaviour change is I think when when people say behaviour change, what they often mean, that they're referring to it as a noun, an outcome. So when we talk about changing people's behaviour, achieving a change in behaviour, we're thinking about people doing something new that they're not doing at the moment. Now, interestingly, the actual science of behaviour change is more about the process. Um, so, and I think there are there are two areas in which we can we can sort of talk about this this concept one one is um what what's known as health psychology so that's essentially uh, applying psychological theory to try and make people make better health decisions and then also thinking about something called behavioral insights which people often refer to as nudging there was a particularly popular book called nudge i think uh, back end of the 2000s which partly resulted in the the formation of the famous nudge unit which is now the behavioral insights team so yeah the, there's a couple of areas in which we, we can address that question directly but we need to remember that we're also we also need to think about what we're trying to achieve and that is not necessarily achieved through behavior change approaches that might seem like a slightly odd thing to say as a psychologist but i, I guess what i'm getting at here is that you can't assume that the only way of changing people's behaviour is by using behaviour change approaches. Does that make sense? I think it does. What's important for us at Project Edward is that the theme of this year's week of action, which is changing minds, changing behaviour, is not just a catchy title. So I welcome your input into that. What should we be expecting with a title like that and what potential does it offer? people when they talk about behavior change they're often talking about what we're trying to achieve so in a road safety context for example what what's the behavioral change that we want to achieve with uh, drivers speed behavior well 
at the very least, we'd like them to be driving within the speed limits and probably we'd like them to be uh, driving much more carefully than they are for the conditions, you know, regardless of what the speed limit is. So that, that's an example of where people will sometimes say, ah, oh, this is what we need. We need some behaviour change here. But they're talking about the outcome. They're not talking about the process. Now, if we just just go back briefly um, to what I mentioned just now and, and talk about health psychology and the behaviour change literature and the evidence we have from that literature. So behaviour change as a concept, from my reading, it really grew up in that health psychology setting. So this is when we're thinking about the behaviours that people take part in that are generally to do with, I think there's there's supposed to be, there's four, three or four behaviours, isn't there, that, that cause or contribute to an awful lot of early death uh, and illness and that those are things like smoking diet inadequate exercise the these kinds of sort of everyday behaviors that we know people you know make some some suboptimal choices in terms of the, the vices they they pick up the the food they consume and the the exercise they they you know often don't take that they should be taking to keep themselves healthy so there's a whole literature on this and going way 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 back decades and decades and decades probably into the mid 1900s there was all kinds of research to understand oh you know how can we actually persuade people through using a knowledge of psychology uh, to make better decisions in terms of their diet and their, their exercise and smoking and drinking and all that all that stuff you, you know you if you look at that literature what you see over the decades is a sort of I guess everything getting just a little bit more sophisticated in terms of that understanding. So in the in the sort of mid 1900s, if you wanted to ask somebody uh, not to smoke, for example, or, or not to drink and drive, that's a, a really good example for us. What you'd tend to do is show them, you know, horrible photos of people's lungs or, or car crashes and, you know, try try and really shock them into understanding the potential outcomes that could result from their their poor decisions. Uh, of smoking or speeding or whatever it was or drink driving over the years we've realized through sort of quite careful uh study that that, that kind of simple you know hit, hit people on the head with some some threat and some fear that just doesn't really work in terms of changing behavior because it's missing some of the component parts so i'll, I'll go on to talk about those now and and if you look at, for example, one of the dominant models uh, in which we think about behaviour change, so that uh, University College London, there's a professor there called Susan Mickey. She leads a team of behaviour change researchers, and they have something called the COMB model. So COMB stands for Capability, Opportunity, Motivation and Behaviour. And what it says is if you if you want to get people to voluntarily change their behavior, you need to equip them with three things. They need to have the capability to change their behavior. They need to have the opportunity to and they need to have the motivation. And what, what you do see sometimes, well, a lot of the time in, for example, road safety is too much, far too much focus on that motivation part and, and almost no focus on the capability and opportunity. So we give people the, the information they need to understand the risks, for example, of drink driving or whatever it is, but we don't necessarily equip them with the skills they need to overcome the current habit that they might have. So, uh, and, and we don't engineer um, opportunities for them to change their behavior. So 
over the years, we've realized that a good good behavior change intervention doesn't just give people the information they need. It also equips them with skills and coping strategies and, and helps them to understand what they actually need to do to lower that risk to them uh, and to others. And actually, just, just a little bit of detail on that. So there's, an, there's another model that, that looks at particularly at th- what we call threat appeals. What that says is if, if you threaten people uh, and, and show, show them information that is going to frighten them, frankly, it, and you know, hoping that that's going to change their behavior. This is a great example of how people can have the information they need but fail to act upon it. Um, so, so what this other theory says is if you, if you show people really frightening content about the behavior that they're involved in, maybe, you know, speeding or whatever it is what they can do is they need to understand that that is a risky behavior they need to see that message as credible but they also crucially need to see it as relevant to them as individuals and also something that they can change and what you find is if they realize that or if they if they sort of resist the message if you like and don't have as much control over the behavior as they might have so imagine for example somebody driving for work who is on a tight schedule they might feel that they need to speed to meet their schedule if you show somebody like that the information about it being dangerous to speed they might go okay yeah i understand it's dangerous to speed however i have no way of changing my behavior because i need to speed to meet my schedule and also they might think something like well i also i'm a really skillful driver so this risk of speeding may not appeal uh, may not apply to me as much as it does to other people and what what those two things have done is subtly disengage from the message and allow people to effectively remove the threat without having to change the behavior so, so that's what we mean when we say, you know, it's not just about giving people information. It's also about equipping people with the, the opportunity and the capability to actually change their behavior in that setting. And, and that sort of gets at something that I think is really important, which is that we need to think about this as a system. We can't think about it just as what we tell people as part of a behavior change approach. It needs to be system based. It can't just be about the individual. Well, we need to look fairly shortly at a couple of examples you've pulled together, the graduated driver licensing and the hazard perception test. But um, injury reduction is also a very important kind of context within which to put these interventions. Can you explain? And this is important because it it leads on to how we'll talk about um, the two topics we're going to talk about. So I forget what it was. It's probably the 1950s again or 1960s. Lots of really cool, interesting stuff goes on in that time around um, psychology and, and injury reduction, public health. There was a there was a famous uh, report. I think it was called Injury in America. And it, it totally shifted the way people thought about the way we should be reducing injury, uh, accidental injury in, in day-to-day life, not, not just in, in road safety, but in, in other contexts. Um, and what what that sort of did was it, it drew together our understanding of, of how we should go about um, changing the the way in which uh, people's environments uh, potentially harm them. And what it did was it it basically said we know from quite a lot of evidence, even at that time, that there are kind of three approaches to this. Right. One is that if you want people to change their behavior, 
you just ask them and maybe you give them some information. And that, that's kind of some of the stuff I've been talking about. We know there's a whole science around you, how you can do that more effectively, not just by giving people information, but also uh, helping them to, you know, build coping strategies and capabilities and so on to help them actually change their behavior. So that's one thing. The second approach you can take is you can require people to change their behavior. So this is you know, enforcing speed limits, having laws that people, you know, are told they, they have to follow. And then the third approach you can take is to essentially just build the behavior into the system or build the outcome that you want into the system. So there's a good example that I can think of within transport and road safety. And again, let's focus on speed because that's a, a ubiquitous risk variable. If you want people to change their speed choice and get them to slow down, essentially, to be safer, you can ask them to. You can provide them with behaviour change messaging and adverts and various you know, marketing approaches and all, all the things we've been talking about uh, to try and encourage them, essentially, to re reduce their speed when they're out driving. You can also require them to by having speed limits and, and having those speed limits well enforced so that people understand and believe, you know, if, if I go out and speed, I will be caught at some point. And, and therefore, that, that is now the thing that's driving or partly driving their behavior change. And then the third thing you can do is you can automate it and build it into the system. And that would the example there would be intelligent speed assistance. So you would have every car you can possibly buy basically has a system in it that stops people uh, going over the speed limit or, or in slightly less slightly less effective ways might might, might just at least stop them going over the speed limit unless they make an active decision to do so. Now, the thing about that hierarchy is it is just that it's a hierarchy. We know from decades of research that if you encourage or ask people to do things, that is less effective than requiring them to do things. And that is less effective than building the safety into the system automatically. So graduated licensing and, and the other thing we're going to talk about, which is hazard perception testing, the thing I love about them as interventions is that they embrace that evidence-based approach that says, do you know what? We need to think about this system-wide. We can't just ask people to do stuff. We can't just try and educate them. It is about more than that. Okay, well, within that background then, let's move on. Introduce graduated driver licensing for us and, and explain why you are such a supporter. So graduated licensing, the way that works, a form of licensing system that recognises that all novice drivers, but especially young ones, when they begin driving solo after they've passed their driving test you know, or achieved their licence in whatever country they they drive in. So after they've stopped being supervised by somebody, their, their collision rate jumps up really, really quickly. And, and in the first few months to, to a year of driving, they have a much higher crash risk than they will later in their driving career. And what we think happens broadly, psychologically, is, well, there's a number of things going on. The first thing is they tend to be younger when they're licensed, so they tend not to be quite as mature in terms of their decision-making. And then the other thing that happens is they, they have almost no on-road experience, especially driving solo. And over their first few months of driving, they sort of learn some more skills to keep themselves safe. And, and the first thousand miles or so of solo driving, we think, is when most of this learning occurs. And that's when they're at greatest risk of crashing because they've just not learned yet, even in all the training and, and so on that they did when they were getting their license. 
they haven't learned yet, you know, for example, what it means to go round a corner at the right speed when you've got four mates in the car, uh, or what it means to be driving in the wet and in the dark, right? Part of the immaturity thing as well is all about socialising. So we know that the more passengers somebody has in a car when they're a novice driver, the more likely they are to crash. And also we know that if they're driving in the dark, they're more likely to crash um, than if they're driving in the daytime. And we think this is wrapped up with socialising and, and lifestyle and so on. And then the, the final thing we know that, that is a risk factor is if people have more and more varied practice before they start driving solo, we think they're slightly safer there as well. So essentially what it does is it says, OK, those are the clear risk factors for this group. What we will do is we'll have a licensing system that requires you, doesn't ask you, it requires you to go through certain stages. So generally in, in GDL systems, you see a minimum learning period. Um, now that varies by country, but, you know, six, 12 months, whatever it is. And what that's doing is it's ensuring that people have slightly longer than they may have had if they'd chosen themselves to fast track themselves to a driving license. It's making sure that they're having longer to get that on-road practice in, more and more varied practice. And it also makes them a bit older when they're licensed, which reduces the maturation risk. The other thing is typically you would include in a, in a strong or good evidence-based graduated system would be nighttime restrictions and passenger restrictions. Uh, which sound really draconian, but they're really not. They're just saying, look, in your first six months, a year, whatever it is of driving, you, if you're driving solo, you're not allowed to drive between, say, the hours of 11 and four in the morning. And you're not allowed to have any passengers the same age as you, or maybe maybe you can only have one passenger. I mean, all, all the systems differ. But what we find is that the stronger systems uh, seem to reduce collisions in this group the most and and what they're doing is they're acting through that require mechanism they are putting that into the law not just asking people to do it so that's a great example of an evidence-based approach to in this case driver licensing and can you point to a location a jurisdiction where that has worked and results have followed yeah yeah, well, everywhere, essentially, that, that's tried it. Um, so basically, every, I, th I think every US state has uh, a form of graduated licensing. I believe every uh, is it state in Australia is the same. I think the provinces in Canada are the same. And I believe you've also got New Zealand. Um, I think New Zealand was the pioneer here. So I think they've had a graduated system since the 1980s. Now, the, the reduction in collisions differs slightly by jurisdiction, but I the, the sort of conservative estimate um, for how much of a reduction you see in young driver collisions and, and well, young driver fatalities, I think, is about 30%, which is a huge effect, um, a huge benefit. But yeah, basically it works everywhere. Presumably it's only going to really work properly if the whole package is introduced. So can you show examples where perhaps it's been watered down and shown not to work? What the evidence seems to show, and, and certainly the work we've done at TRL on this, we've done lots of reviews on this over the years. And what it seems to show is that, yes, the stronger systems, the more the more um, 
measures within the system that you have. There are other things, by the way, that so sometimes alcohol limits, so a zero alcohol limit, for example, for the first you know year or so of driving, that's another one. And, and there's various other things. But the, the, the three I've mentioned are the three that seem to be very effective. And what we see is that if you have all three of those, you tend to get stronger effects than if you have only one or two of them. Uh, and similarly, if you have a nighttime restriction, the wider the range uh, or the the wider the time window in which people are not allowed to drive, the, the more effective it tends to be. Uh, and, and going back to your point about introducing it piecemeal, I mean, even though we know that weaker systems are less effective, there's sometimes, I think, a case, and we've seen this in certain states, um, well, in certain jurisdictions, many, in fact, what you tend to see is introduction of a, a basic system that is politically acceptable is better than not doing it at all, um, even if that is not the optimal approach, because what we then tend to see is public support for that system actually grows. Um, so once it's introduced, you tend to see systems get strengthened over time because the driving public, um, parents, guardians of young people, and even the young people themselves eventually just realize that this is a more workable system. And it gives, it gives, it sets clear boundaries. It gives, uh, uh, parents uh, and guardians the legitimacy to sort of police it because you know that's another thing how do you police whether people are driving at night or or carrying passengers well I mean, the answer is you don't really i mean most most jurisdictions that have introduced this the enforcement in terms of law enforcement uh, is pretty light and we still see good um compliance so yeah you just get to a position where people realize that it's a sensible Thing to do, I think. That's generally what happens. In the time we have left, let's talk about your other chosen intervention, the hazard perception test. Why is that, uh, why is that here today? Again, for me, it's a fantastic example of something that achieves behaviour change through a range of mechanisms. So, look, being, being reasonably quick, because I know we've not got much time left, if you go back to the research that was done with young drivers in the 1980s and 90s, it became clear that one skill that new drivers lack is the ability to read the road and anticipate what's going to happen on the road ahead so they can prepare in good time. So that's that's why it's called hazard perception. So it's spotting things that might go wrong so you can slow down and take action and so on. And, and the driving license directive of the time gave us an opportunity to add a video or picture based um, test of some kind to the theory test that we had at the time. Uh, and that's what we did. So work at TRL and uh, other places and other academics were involved as well. Basically took all of that knowledge we had about what the skill of hazard perception looks like. We knew that people with higher skill had fewer crashes. We knew that it could be trained and we knew that it could be tested. So what we did was we built the hazard perception test into the licensing process. So now when you take your theory test since 2002, you also have to take a video-based hazard perception test. And over time, and there was a great big study in the, in the 2000s called the Cohort 2 study that TRL ran, we were able to show that the introduction of that test, we think, has led to somewhere in the region of a, an 11% reduction in, in the sort of on-road collisions that you'd expect um, from this group. So it, yeah, essentially a really, really effective implementation of a test to ensure that people, when they pass the test, have that level of uh, competency 
in this particular skill that we know is critical for safety. Um, and like I said to you before, it's not just that we've asked people to train themselves up or whatever, we've required that they do so and we built it into the licensing system. So there's no way now, unless people are driving unlicensed, for them to drive without demonstrating that they have hazard perception skill at a level that has been determined um, as required to pass the test. So great example, in my opinion, of applied research. Dr. Sean Hellman, thank you very much. Well, you've been listening to episode five of Are We There Yet? The Project Edward 2022 podcast. I hope you found it interesting and useful. Subscribe, download and tell your friends. Make sure everyone knows about it. We'll be back next week on a platform near you, so do join us. But for now, from me, James Luckhurst, it's goodbye. <laughs>